So good evening, everyone. I, uh, I assume you all had a, a good, those of you who have Hanukkah, you had a good one? You did the ritual spinning of the dreidel? And eating the latkes, that's, that's how many Jews relate to Hanukkah, eating latkes. <laughs> we do the, the uh, traditional playing of the Tom Lear song, I'm spending Hanukkah in Santa Monica, <laughs> which is so uh, ironic. You know, Jews don't belong in Santa Monica, really. <laughs> Wearing sandals, lighting candles by the sea, it's just not... Uh, It's always a bit of a strange time for me because I grew up I grew up the only Jewish kid in in a small town in Nebraska and uh around this time of year we had a we had a Christmas tree cuz my parents couldn't not have a, a tree in the house uh, but we called it a Hanukkah bush and we put a star of David on top and I remember taking pride that uh, we had six points to our star, and they only had five <laughs> points. And I and I used to sing uh, with the junior high choir a vespers program, a Christmas program. And every time the songs would come to the words "Christ our Savior" or "Little Lord Jesus," I would cross my fingers as I sang. <laughs> I wanted God to know that I hadn't fallen for this hoax. <laughs> but that's an old tribal story. I want to talk tonight a, a little bit about our new story. It's sort of my passion and a theme that I come back to again and again. And it it's perennially, not perennially, it's a refreshed almost weekly because a lot of what I like to talk about has to do with our understanding of ourselves uh, based on what the scientists are discovering and, and what we as a civilization, uh, through our great wisdom tradition of science, uh, what we are finding out about ourselves and the universe that we live in. And uh, just a few weeks ago, maybe, maybe a month ago now, uh, astronomers announced the discovery of yet another planet uh, in another solar system that they think is very likely to be able to support life as we know it, or even life as we don't know it, because now we're, we're thinking that life may not necessarily have to be like this. That's another discovery that was made just this week. Um, but anyway, they found this, this planet. They call it a Goldilocks planet. There are a lot of Goldilocks planets that, that they're finding now. They're, it's a planet that's not too hot and not too cold. <laughs> and this one, they've named Gliese 581G. That's the name of, name of this planet. So we can assume that if there are beings on that planet, we, we could call them Gleesers. And the planet goes around its sun every 37 days. So, you know, the years just go whizzing by. 
you could live to be a lot older if you lived on if you were a gleaser. Uh, but it wasn't very long ago. I think maybe a decade ago, and I was reading scientists saying that no, there's no there's no life out there because all the planets they were discovering were either too close to their sun or in the wrong place in the galaxy and getting too many uh, you know microwaves or X-rays or whatever kinds of rays are lethal. Anyway. There was, uh, you know, the speculation was there wasn't life out there. Now they're saying there are thousands of planets in our galaxy alone that very well could support life. And our galaxy is one of now an estimated 100 billion galaxies. Not solar systems, galaxies, full of billions and billions of suns in every galaxy. And there are billions of galaxies. And there's life, obviously, or pretty likely, everywhere out there. I think this is really good news because it takes the pressure off of us. <laughs> We no longer have to carry the entire burden of meaning in the cosmos. It's not all about us. For so long we believed it was all about us. We were the center of creation. That's a heavy bar a burden. You know, the whole universe was made just for us. It wasn't that long ago couple hundred years ago that, uh, you know, most people believed that the earth went around the sun. I mean, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah, well, that's how it looks anyway, you know, <laughs> kind of how it feels. But, <laughs> you know, then Galileo got out his instruments and, and said, no, 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 the, the uh, earth goes around the sun. And the, he was excommunicated for that from the Catholic Church, which finally forgave him in 1979. <laughs> it was a little hard by then to say that the sun was the center of the universe. But uh, it's, it's actually quite exciting and, and interesting. I mean... Uh, we have placed so much importance on our own existence as specially created and somehow separate from all the rest of creation that, you know, uh, not having nothing to do with it all, really, except that uh, we were kind of in charge of it. You know, we're dropped down here to, to have dominion. But that whole, that whole story is changing. And we really, we really need a good new story. We need an update of our uh, mythology, an upgrade of our mythology. Because uh, it's a mythology that has allowed us actually to kind of ruin our habitat as a species. We've really, uh, we've just not treated uh, the other life of this planet with the kind of respect that we have to treat it if we're going to survive ourselves.
we're going to let this little biosphere project continue, then we have to change our story, really. Joseph Campbell said, The old gods are dead or dying, and people everywhere are searching, asking, What is the new mythology to be? The mythology of this unified earth as of one harmonious being. We need a myth that will identify the individual not just with his or her own self, family, or group, but with the whole planet. I think the new story that we're that is evolving, literally, uh, is very. Um, is very close to what the Buddha taught. The Buddha really deconstructed the human and wanted us to sort of break our sentimental attachment to this idea of specialness. And had us, you know, I mean, he had us take apart the body and look at the 32 parts separately and so that to break our sense of of beauty or our attachment to this this form. He was no romantic. I don't know if James has misled, misled you, but the Buddha was. I I know he 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 loves to uh, talk about joy. I I always kid him. I say I'm here to bring the oi back into joy. <laughs> Uh, but the, the, that, the Buddha was really trying to get us to, to break our illusions and our attachment to this specialness. Um, and now, with the, this new story we're, we're evolving, the story of evolution, we're actually deconstructing what it means to be a member of the species. We're just deconstructing the species itself. Um, because up until just 150 years ago or so, most people believed that humans were like fully created, fully made when they appeared, you know? And that every species was, was unto itself fully created as it was. And now we are understanding that everything evolved out of everything else, that we are related to every being that's ever lived. Um, nobody did this deconstruction of the human better than Mark Twain. <laughs> and um, this is, as you know, uh, he's, the, he's now a best-selling author again. His autobiography is on the top of the charts, or number three in New York Times bestseller list. His autobiography he didn't want uh, published until 100 years after his death because I guess there were a lot of things that he said there that it's sort of like WikiLeaks, uh, very embarrassing to a lot of people. But uh, And a lot of what he wrote, a lot of what he wrote was not published in his lifetime or he would have been lynched because he, uh, he had some very uh, negative feelings about organized religion and about the human species itself. 
uh, he said, uh, well, he said a lot of really funny and interesting things. This was a piece he wrote in 1903, and uh, it wasn't published during his lifetime. It was only published uh, uh, in... In 1973, and it's called, Was the World Made for Man? And I'll read you uh, parts of it. I seem to be the only scientist and theologian still remaining to be heard from on this important matter of whether the world was made for man or not. I feel it is time for me to speak. I stand almost with the others. They believe the world was made for man, and I think it might be that it was made for man. According to the latest figures, it took 99,968,000 years to prepare the world for man, impatient as the Creator doubtless was to see him and admire him. But a large enterprise like this has to be conducted warily, painstakingly, logically. It was foreseen that man, once he arrived, would have to have an oyster. Therefore, the first preparation was made for the oyster. Very well. You can't make an oyster out of whole cloth. You must make the oyster's ancestors first. This is not done in a day. You must make a vast variety of invertebrates to start with, trilobites, jebusites, that sort of critter. Put them to soak in a primary sea and wait and see what will happen. Some will be a disappointment. They will die out and become extinct in the course of the 19 million years covered by the experiment. But all is not lost, for the Amalekites will develop gradually into Encronites and one thing and another as the mighty ages creep on and the Archaean and Cambrian periods pile their lofty crags in the primordial seas. And at last, the first stage in the preparation of the world for man stands completed. The oyster is done. <laughs> now, an oyster has hardly any more reasoning power than a scientist has. And... <laughs> So it is reasonably certain that this one jumped to the conclusion that the 19 million years was a preparation for him. But that would be just like an oyster, which is the most conceited animal there is except for man, of course. And anyway, this oyster could not know at that date that he was only an incident in a scheme and there was more to the scheme yet. And then he talks about how he have to, man, when he arrived, would have to have fish and coal to fry it with, and you'd have to build the coal fields, and that takes a lot of time with all the sediment laid down and flooding and, you know, and then hardening and then another layer of sediment. The Paleozoic time limit having now been reached, it was necessary to begin the next stage in the preparation of the world for man by opening up the Mesozoic age and instituting some reptiles, for man would need reptiles not to eat but to develop himself from. This being the most important detail of the scheme, a spacious liberality of time was set apart for it. Thirty million years, and what wonders followed. Those stupendous saurians that used to prowl about the steamy world in those remote ages with their snaky heads reared 40 feet in the air and 60 feet of body and tail racing and thrashing after. It took 30 million years and 20 million reptiles to get one that would stick long enough to develop into something else and let the scheme proceed to the next step. It was the paradactyl which burst upon the world in all its impressive solemnity and grandeur. Now, it may be that the paradactyl thought the 30 million years had been intended as a preparation for himself, for there was nothing too foolish for a paradactyl to imagine. But he was in error. The preparation was for man. 
Now, from this time onward, for nearly another 30 million years, the preparation moved briskly. From the pterodactyl was developed the bird. From the bird, the kangaroo. From the kangaroo, the other marsupials. From these, the mastodon, the giant sloth, the Irish elk, and all that crowd that you make useful and instructive fossils out of. Then came the first great ice sheet. And they all retreated before it and crossed over the bridge at Bering Strait and wandered around over Europe and Asia and died. <laughs> all except a few to carry on the preparation with. Six glacial periods with two million years between chased these poor orphans up and down about the earth from weather to weather, from tropic swelter at the poles to arctic frost at the, the equator, and back again and to and fro, they never knowing what kind of weather was going to turn up next. And if they ever settled down anywhere, the whole continent suddenly sank under them without the least notice. And they had to trade places with the fishes and scramble off to where the seas had been and scarcely a dry rag on them. And when there was nothing else doing, a volcano would let go and fire them out from wherever they had located. They led this unsettled, irritating life for 25 million years, always wondering what it was all for, never suspecting, of course, that it was preparation for man and had to be done just so or it wouldn't be any proper and harmonious place for him when he arrived. Then at last came the monkey, and anybody could see that man wasn't far off now. And in truth, that was so. The monkey went on developing for close upon three, five million years, and then, to all appearances, turned into a man. Such is the history of it. Man's been here 32,000 years. That it took 100 million years to prepare the world for him is proof that that's what it was all done for, I suppose. I don't know. <laughs> Mark Twain. A great piece of writing. The Buddha said, step out of your, your little picture, your little drama. Step into a, a, a big perspective. He was once uh, teaching his son, Rahula. He said, you know, Rahula, you take a teaspoon of salt and you put it in a glass of water, it will make the water turn salty, taste salty. But if you put that teaspoon in the Ganges, it won't affect the taste of the water at all. It's that kind of understanding that, you know, it's, uh, it's so much bigger, so much bigger than we are. In our, in our little party here. And another part of our new story this week was so uh, also interesting. It's been a, being disputed a little bit. The, uh, the bacteria that they found that can actually uh, substitute arsenic for phosphorus in its, the structure of its uh, elements, its molecules, and uh, people were very excited about that because it means that their life doesn't necessarily have to conform to this one particular set of ingredients. There may be other uh, forms of life that have completely different chemical makeup. I mean, who's to say that it's all got to be just like this? Uh, you know, people have talked about a silicon-based life form for for quite a while now, you know, the, if you're 
computer starts to get uppity, you'll know that you know there's some there's possibility that other things can can live. I think it was Lily Tomlin who said uh, they have RNA and DNA on on other planets. They just spell it differently. <laughs> <laughs> But the Buddha, the Buddha was very, um, very clear about investigating who you actually think you are, uh, and going into all of your experience with the question, what is its origin? What's the origin of this thought? What is its ancestry? Uh, from whence does it arise? From where, from where does it arise? And he said, if you really look at all your experience and study it carefully, you will eventually realize this is not I. This is not mine. This is not myself. He repeats this over and over again about all our perception, all of our thinking, all of our emotions. This is not I. This is not mine. This is not myself. This is not owned by me. And a lot of it has to do with he, what he was talking about in his universe of discourse was karma. You know, the karma, the, all of these causes and conditions stretching in all directions uh, through all of recorded or unrecorded time have come together to create this moment of your experience. And he was talking about lifetimes of karma coming to this moment of your experience. And if you really see that, you see that uh, it's inherited. Your conditioning, what brings you into this moment is an inherited uh, set of conditions. Now we are unraveling at least one or two threads of our karma, such as the story of evolution. We now know that every living being is related to the first living beings, which were single-celled organisms. Uh, and the scientists even gave them a name, gave him, her a name, the first living being, Luca. The last universal common ancestor, Luca. So you can imagine Luca, you know, bobbing around on the old seas, kind of as happy as anyone could be because there was nobody else. Uh, but getting a little lonely, you know, and uh, kind of wanting to fall in love, too. So she, he split in two. And... Uh, of course, immediately fell in love with her other half because it was her, you know? I mean, life is built on narcissism. It is truly, <laughs> truly built on narcissism. But one thing we do, you know, here in Buddhism, you often hear people talking about, you know, uh, self-liberation. We want to get rid of the self. But I think we should uh, put
put out a disclaimer, you know, that uh, you, you get rid of yourself at your own risk. <laughs> and that self is actually there. Self is actually there in all living beings. Every living being has a sense of its own integrity and it's here, it's in here and the world is out there. And, you know, it extends its little membrane, a single-celled being, if there's some food in the, in the vicinity and it retracts it if there's some threat. Every living being has a sense of boundary, a sense of self. Um, there's a wonderful um, scientist named Antonio Damasio who studies emotion. He's one of the leading experts considered the leading expert in, in emotion and consciousness and how that how consciousness happens and uh, he just came out with a new book called self comes to mind you know self suddenly appears in the mind and um, his theory is that the brain is constantly mapping your body the inner world it, moment after moment, it's a continual, uh, it's sort of like a GPS, you know, it's just like, and may also making a map of the exterior world. And your ability to move through that world and manipulate the objects in that world is essential. And that those maps are actually what give you a sense of self that I am in here, the world is out there, and I am moving through the world. It's a, it's a, a brilliant kind of uh, adaptation. But it's interesting, if you see it as purely, uh, as, as purely that, a survival mechanism, it immediately makes, depersonalizes that sense of self. In other words, we're all kind of being moved through our life. I mean, you could call it spirit if you want, or God if you want, or evolution if you want. But we really are all being moved. We do the things we do because we are programmed to live and, and, and reproduce. And that's what guides our life. Uh, it sounds cold, I know, you know, and, uh, and very unromantic, but I think it's true. And I think that if life had not been programmed so powerfully to survive and be, be so determined to replicate itself, we never would have survived all the disasters of the natural world. It, they're of, of, of volcanoes and, you know, continents bumping into each other. But the fact that life insisted upon living and reproducing and finding new ways to move and new ways to sense when, it, when there was a new environment, that that, that that dance that we do with the world, uh, that life does with the world, uh, had to be the way it was or, you know, we, we would have given up a long time ago, or life would have given up a long time ago. I'm just, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm playing with this 
stuff because I'm so fascinated by it. But I think if we if we really take the story seriously, personally, if we can learn the existential message or perhaps the spiritual message of the story of evolution, it will teach us forgiveness and uh, a new sense of belonging, uh, liberation. I mean, what we are doing, we are part of an ongoing process of continually changing forms. You know, the average species lives for about five million years. Are we one of those species, or are we somehow going to make it longer? Or, I mean, is there another form coming after us? Are we the missing link? You are? <laughs> this, is, this is Alan Watts. What we need is a view of ourselves that is less grandiose. He writes, All the other species of life seem to be free from our human scheming and self-importance. The birds and beasts indeed pursue their business of eating and breeding with the utmost devotion, but they do not pretend that it serves higher ends or makes a significant contribution to the progress of the world. He says, Our human projects and talents, such as the power of thought, are indeed natural marvels, but so are the immense beaks of the toucans and the fabulous tails of the birds of paradise, the towering necks of the giraffes and the polychromed posteriors of the baboons. And when we can view our talents as just one among many of nature's wonders, then our self-importance dissolves in laughter. Furthermore, we will begin to see that we have become too cunning and practical for our own good. And for this very reason, we are in need of a new philosophy, which, like nature, has no purpose or consequence other than itself. Can we live with that? I mean, there, there's no doubt that we will continue our eating and breeding with utmost devotion. But... Uh, can we shift a little bit out of that arrogance that says that we are, you know, here for dominion? Because we need, we really need a new understanding of ourselves. Uh, there's a new UN report that's coming out. It may have, they may have been released already. It was coming out this week. It's a disaster what's happening out there. I mean, I don't want to bring you down. I like to, you know, keep it light. But the magnitude of the damage to the planet's ecosystems is much bigger than previously thought. The rate of species extinction is currently running at 1,000 times the natural historical background rate of extinction. The most recent study by the International Union for Conservation of Nature found that 21% of all known mammals, 30% of amphibians, 35% of invertebrates, and 70% of plants are facing extinction. We somehow need to understand that we share this planet and we have to start 
thinking about less people. There are so it's so obvious that underneath all of our struggles is this problem of overpopulations. Some of you will have to go. <laughs> I, I think I think the people who wrote the Bible got got the message wrong. It wasn't go forth and multiply. It was go forth and add. But in the coming in the coming century or two, it, there's bound to be some real catastrophic die-off of our species. Uh, it is what happens naturally to species that overpopulate and uh, and um, overconsume and destroy their habitat, and that's what we're doing. Um, and I guess what we are doing here in the Dharma, in the world of the Dharma, sometimes I think we're doing this. I mean, we're helping to make ourselves feel a little better and maybe calm our minds a little and, and also maybe find some different kinds of satisfaction other than consuming that, you know, realizing that a calm, loving mind, it's really the sweetest experience you can have and that somehow we're, we're slowing down the aggressive uh, uh, machine that, that is really, really causing havoc. I like to think that we are. I like to think that this is part of the solution and also part of the solution because it is a lesson in humility. <laughs> you sit and try to be mindful and, and you see how out of control the human mind is. I mean, we... You know, Freud kind of uh, told us 100 years ago that uh, we were not the rational beings that we thought we were, in case we hadn't noticed. And, but, and now the, the, the neuroscientists, you know, the biologists are discovering how little uh, control we have, how little agency or freedom we have. They're doing these tests where, you know, they ask somebody to push a button when they feel like it, and they're all hooked up to these uh, picture-taking devices and charting the brain's activities. The brain goes into readiness preparation, or the brain decides it's time to push the button, and then the person decides, oh, I'm going to push the button now, and pushes the button and is under the illusion that he, he or she actually made the conscious decision of when to push the button. But the brain actually took charge. <laughs> and more and more, they find, they're doing experiments like that and finding that, uh, that the older brains are really uh, what is functioning most uh, actively in our, in our skull up there. Uh, you know we have three brains. That one of the great discoveries of the 20th century was, was Paul McLean, who was studying the evolution of the brain and, and realized that we grow a brain stem, the reptilian brain, and then we grow the limbic system, the mammalian brain, and then we get the new human brain, the neocortex, and that one brain doesn't override the other brains. In fact, uh, the other brains seem to be engaged 100%. Uh, 
of the time and 100% of the neurons patterned and, you know, connected. Uh, the, the serious speculation among scientists now is that we use our new human brain mostly to make excuses for the behavior generated by the other two brains. That that's... We're not rational animals. We're rationalizing animals. <laughs> the thing is that in meditation, we actually can begin to see these, this new understanding of, the, of science in a very personal way. We can see it happening in our own minds. You know, when we try to find some mindfulness and we see the mind just doing its, its thing, you know, just conditioned reactions and, and responses and planning. And I mean, take a session of, of sitting and see how many of your thoughts have something to do with survival. If you add, you know, your place in the pecking order to survival, the survival category, 99% of your thoughts are about survival. I mean, you know, you can... There are some others that uh, gratuitous thinking. I don't know. But, um, but you really begin to see yourself in a, in a different context, you know. Uh, not so, so deeply trusting and believing in this, this mammal, you know, with its insistence on getting and spending and, you know, surviving. and I, It just might be a real nice shot of reality. Uh, I know it's not pretty, is it? But actually, it is pretty because you also are seeing how, how much connection you have to the other, other beings and how closely related we are. This is Thich Nhat Hanh. We humans think we are smart, but an orchid knows how to produce noble, symmetrical flowers. A snail knows how to make a beautiful, well-proportioned shell. Compared with their knowledge, ours is not so special. We should bow deeply before the orchid and the snail and join our palms reverently before the monarch butterfly and the magnolia tree. The feeling of respect for all species will help us recognize the noblest nature in our own. So, we have some time for additions, corrections, um, thoughts. Yes. Do you want to, does somebody want to run this around or do you want to just? Okay, great. And you can, you can pass it on. Just a question about uh, the genetic engineering and how it applies to humans. Can you hear me? Can we? we can. Yeah, I'm just asking about genetic engineering mm -hmm. and how it may play a role in the process of evolution. Um, it just seems that uh, the process of evolution could be 
you know, stepped up, you know, by light years with genetic engineering. So why, why wouldn't that be part of the process? Uh, we get to a certain stage in our development, and then we are able to reflect on our own genetic makeup and to rearrange that and make ourselves something other than what we are. That's a that's an interesting question. Uh, whether we can actually take our species, uh, the evolution of our species, into our own hands and and uh, somehow uh, direct where we're going as a as a species. I I don't think evolution works that way. First of all. Uh, Evolution depends on what the natural world, what's compatible with the natural world. And I mean, I, I guess we could, you know, maybe see that, uh, well, we've overheated the planet. Uh, maybe we should grow, uh, you know, <laughs> develop a, some kind of heat resistant <laughs> uh, ex exoderm or something. I don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, but, um, I don't, I don't know that, that it actually works that way. Uh, I mean, I've had fantasies that, that scientists would figure out how to make us all more mindful, how to tweak a gene and we would be born with mindfulness, fully engaged, you know, and we would be, we would be what we now call ourselves. We would actually live up to the name Homo sapien sapien, twice no, twice wise which means that we know that we know, which is a kind of a way of thinking about mindfulness. You know, you know what you're doing. Um, but uh, I don't know that, that, you know, that could happen. And maybe, maybe it could. Maybe it could. Maybe we could find a way to turn down our desire, the desire gear in the brain, be happier with less, with ordinary, with just being alive, with be happy with moments. Anyway, it's an interesting question. I, I, I don't know how to answer it, obviously. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You can go ahead and if you want to make it loud. They grow together. Uh, they grow alongside each other. Um, the habit they, they adapt to a habitat. They adapt to each other. And genetic engineering is controlling one species, separate from the others. It's not. It's not necessarily uh -huh. helping an interaction to occur. And what? So so it's more. A separation than it is a coming to, uh, and adapting, and I don't think it would. I don't think it would work. <laughs> I mean, but that's just my intuition. Did you hear? Did you hear that? That she she doesn't think genetic engineering. Uh huh. 
Right, right. We are changing lots of things. Or lots of things are changing. How, how about that? <laughs> Who knows what's doing it, you know? The forces of karma. I mean, the, you know, the, the, the momentum of the world is changing things. Yes. <laughs> I I don't know. Uh, uh, <laughs> I have no thoughts about that. I actually. Um, are there any other questions? <laughs> yes. Yeah, please. Level off between 11 and 14 billion? Do we want that many people? <laughs> no, it isn't. But I've read that that uh, that it, that even the eight billion that they're expecting by you know in the year 2040 or so that that, that we really would need two or three Earths to to yeah but even yeah I mean it's too crowded just too crowded. Yeah. It just kind of seems to me that there is a, there's something happening, you know, all over the earth that we're all being brought to our knees in a way that our, everyone's hearts are being opened and that I feel like something is about to happen. I don't know, it's not necessarily bad, but there's a giant shift that I keep getting that message intuitively and uh, maybe I'm just 
but that something there will be a gigantic shift before we just self combust. You know? I hope you're right. She thinks so. She senses that there's going to be a gigantic shift. It will take uh, a lot of uh, shift to get people out of their sense of, of their own nation and their own identification with their small group, a, lo a big shift. But I, I'm, I'm hopeful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a hopeful story that the, the human community basically realized that we had a population trajectory problem, and uh, there were many, many people who uh, have gotten together over the course of the past 30 years through the United Nations and international organizations, and, uh, governments, and grassroots organizations all over the world to affect this dramatic change. I'm glad. I'm I'm glad there's hope out there. I I mean I I have hope. I do have hope. I mean the this the species die off is is a is largely because uh, humans have inhabited so much of the earth and have spread out into so many places and and. That's a kind of result of the of the numbers and and the crowding, and I don't know that that can be contained by either what we eat or changed either by what we eat, or you know uh, if you know I mean the the oceans are completely overfished and you know I. Mean, I think we need I think we need fewer people. I, my sense of it. I'm hopeful. Yeah. I really appreciate what you've been talking about tonight, and what I'm taking away from it is this need for, in myself anyway, the need for a very fine balancing act between awareness of what we've been talking about and um, a sense of not. Thank you. That's that's great. I, I I do think that when you really consider the enormity of you know what we're talking about, uh, 
that really it comes down to alleviating suffering in this moment as much as possible, being present for your life, being being celebratory about this moment, about, about being alive. I mean, those are the those that is part of the shift away from consumption that will help us, uh, you know, walk a lot more light lightly on the earth. Uh, I mean, you know, the sun's going to explode. The sun's going to go into Nova in a few billion years. Andromeda's going to crash into the Milky Way. And there's going to be a huge black hole. And, you know, everything is going to get sucked away. We are, I mean, you know, we could, we could save the planet for a little while. <laughs> there's a... There's a great, there's a great Taoist, Chuanzi uh, says, do you really think you can take over the universe and improve it? That it's, there's a, there's a kind of humility of saying, you know, I'll do what I can and love and be, you know, uh, as kind as I can and not create harm, but there are forces working here that are so much bigger than we are. And, uh, there's a kind of relief that comes from that. That you're not in charge. Uh, I think a great relief and an and a, and a intelligence that, that is in that. Anyway, let me just close with something fun. And, uh, <laughs> here's, a, here's a poem by Gary Snyder. Old old wood rat's stinky house. Coyote and earth maker whirling around in the world winds found a metal lark nest floating and drifting, stretched it to cover the waters and made us an earth. Us critters hanging out together something like two billion years. Ice ages come 150 million years apart, last about 10 million. Then warmer days return. A venerable desert wood rat's nest of twigs and shreds is a family house in use 8,000 years. And 4,000 years of written language equals the life of a bristlecone pine. A spoken language works for about five centuries, lifespan of a Douglas fir, big floods, big fires every couple hundred years. A human life lasts 80, generation 20. Hot summers every eight or ten, four seasons every year, 28 days for the moon, day and night for 24 hours, and a song might last four minutes, and a breath is a breath. Coyote says, you people should stay put here, study yourself, learn your place, and do good things. Me, I'm moving on. sit for a moment.
Thank you all for coming. And, uh, have a wonderful holiday season. And until our paths cross again, be well. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.